Revelation chapter 3 this morning. Revelation chapter 3. Do you realize that much like these churches, Christ is standing near our lampstand? The, the lampstand of our church. And it's a great comfort to know that that Christ is there working to make sure that our light is trimmed and and burning brightly, filled with oil. But at the same time, it's also sobering to know that Christ is standing near our lampstand. That He knows all that is going on within our midst. And uh, I wonder what type of letter the church would write or Christ would write to the church in Royal Oak here. What would He say? What would He commend us for? What would He condemn us for? Would we be like the church at Ephesus that they had lost their first love? Would we be commended for our discernment that we were not allowing the, the, uh, the false teachers to come in and have their way? Or would we be condemned for that very same reason, for, for tolerating evil and for tolerating false teaching? Christ is working to make His church spotless so that we can be presented before Him on the day of Jesus Christ as a beautiful bride for the perfect groom. But in order for us for that to happen, in order for us to be perfect, to be spotless, we need to be changing now. That's the process that takes place after you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that Christ changes you and He changes me. So that means that we must persevere. We have to continue on in the faith. That Those are the ones that will be called Christ's bride. And we learn about uh, much about perseverance here in this Sixth letter to the church at Philadelphia, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. I'll begin reading in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because You have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The message for the church of Philadelphia is the message for us that the Lord protects and provides for those who persevere. Notice 
All the protection that happens as a result of the believer's perseverance. Look at the end of verse 8. Because you have little power and have kept My Word and have not denied My name. So there's the perseverance. Then verse 9, Behold, I will, and at the end of the verse, make these people bow down to your feet. Okay, So there's the perseverance followed by what Christ will do for those who persevere. Verse 10, Because you have kept the word of My perseverance, there's the perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. We'll talk about what that is. So perseverance leads to Christ's blessing in some way. Look at the second part of verse 11. Hold fast that uh, what you have. Okay, that's the idea of perseverance. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The implied uh, result or reward for those who do do persevere is that they will receive some sort of crown. And then verse 12, he who overcomes, or we could say he who perseveres, I will, and then he tells three things that he'll do. So, for that reason, for 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 that reason, the reasons that we just looked at, I would say that the Lord protects and provides for those who persevere. Now, we have to be careful when we say, when we speak in those terms, when we say that the Lord protects and provides for those who persevere. It sounds as if, if we do something, God is obligated, or Christ in this case is obligated to do something for us. That he, he, we've, we've twisted His arm. In other words, the basis for which we are blessed is our own perseverance. But we have to understand, as the rest of the Scripture teaches, that that is not the reason that we receive those rewards. Okay, So there's a difference between saying those who persevere will receive rewards and saying those who persevere will receive rewards because they persevered. Okay? The very reason, the basis for their rewards comes in their serving Christ. We know that the basis for our salvation, for the rewards that we will, we will receive is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That Christ already paid for our sins. There's nothing more we can add to the cross, right? There's nothing more that we can do. It's not as if God looks down at us and He says, well, that, that looks pretty good, what Jesus did for you, but I need a little bit more out of you. And so if you'll just do these things, then I can accept you. Rather, the way the Scripture talks is all, all of our standing before God is is founded in Jesus Christ. What He has done through His cross work, through His perfect life, through His resurrection and ascension, it's all in Jesus Christ. But the evidence of those who have been changed, those who have been purchased by His blood, is that they will persevere. And so we could say in some sort of immediate sense that when we persevere, we receive rewards. And that also would be true, but it's not the basis for why we receive those rewards. Do you understand the difference? So what we're talking about in this passage focuses heavily on our responsibility, but when we go through this, we have to recognize that it's not the basis for which we receive those rewards. It's simply an evidence of. An evidence of a genuine, uh, cha- genuinely changed life, one that has been saved, is that they will persevere. 
and those who persevere are protected and provided for by Christ. Notice, the Lord protects those who persevere. The protected ones are seen in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, as we have done each time, we begin with the the, uh, recipients of this letter. And Philadelphia is a city 30 miles southeast of Sardis in uh, modern Alishahir, Turkey. And uh, like Sardis, this church at Philadelphia was probably started by Paul on his three-year stay at Ephesus. Either he went and started this church in Philadelphia, or he probably sent a representative to do it. Or I should say, he, he could have sent a representative. We don't know for sure. But Philadelphia lied in a prosperous valley and uh, was known for its vineyards. And so the, this letter goes to this church in Philadelphia and Jesus is going to commend this church and uh, and really offer no condemnation to them. The, uh, the letter is also sent to our church as well, as well as all churches of all time. Look at verse 13. As you've noticed that each letter ends this way, or end, is towards the end of each letter, verse 13 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to not just the church at Philadelphia, but to the churches. So this is designed to go to all seven of these churches as well as all churches of all time. And so the protected ones, the ones whom the Lord protects, are the churches to whom He is writing. And we can be included in that that protection as well. Notice the second part of verse 7, because we see who the protector is. It is the Lord says, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. The Lord is our protector. He is called holy and true. These are terms that are given to the name of Almighty God in Isaiah. uh, uh, I don't have the reference, but in Isaiah, He's called holy and true. And He's also called uh, holy and true in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. So if Jesus is calling Himself holy and true, He's saying something about His Godness. That He is God. That He is holy and true. To be holy, as you know, means to be set apart. To be set apart for God's purposes. To be distinct. To be true means to be genuine or authentic. So in contrast to the false gods in Jeremiah 10 that that they they try to offer all these things or at least people think they offer all these things, and yet they, they offer nothing. They don't satisfy in any way. They, they don't provide. In fact, you have to provide for the idols. Jeremiah 10, so you have a guy that's crafting these things and, and having to carve them out. It's kind of a silly, uh, it's kind of a silly uh, narrative there in Jeremiah 10 that shows the, the foolishness of idols. But unlike that, God is true. So, so what he says about himself is authentic, is genuine, that, that he can be trusted. He is in agreement, as Charles Ryrie says, he's in agreement with all that he represents. Jesus is calling himself the same thing. He is holy and true. He is set apart and he is genuine. And the protector is also listed as the one in verse 7 who has the key of David and who opens uh, and no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens. Let me have you turn to Isaiah chapter 22 because 
we need to see where this wording or this idea comes from. And often with John, he points back to Old Testament Scriptures which had saturated his mind and he uses them to help describe, in this case, uh, Jesus is speaking, so we can say Jesus is using the Old Testament Scriptures um, to help describe himself. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Here we see from the larger context of Scripture what these terms mean. What does it mean that he has the key of David and he opens what no one will shut and shuts what no one will open? Well, verse 22 tells us of Isaiah 22. <clears throat> Speaking of the the uh, the day of the Lord, or we could say the time of judgment and blessing, in that day, is, it's often referred to by the prophets, verse 22 says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Christ has the keys to what? According to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, He has the keys to the kingdom. We know at that time the Ancient of Days, God the Father, comes and gives to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the keys to the kingdom. Verse 14 of Daniel 7 says, And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 talks about Jesus having the keys to the kingdom. So in Isaiah 22, we could say that to have the key of the house of David on His shoulders and to be able to open what no one will shut and to shut what no one will open is the idea of protection. Turn back to Revelation chapter 3 because in verse 8, what he does is he begins with this phrase that he often does to each of these churches, I know your deeds. Because of your perseverance, because you have done these things, then I'm going to, I'm going to allow you entrance into this kingdom to which I have the keys. No one will be able to shut the door that uh, that I open, even though he's going to say, you have little power, verse 8. Even though you have little power, you may be small, you may, be, uh, you may not have a lot of authority, but I'm going to open this door to the kingdom and no one is going to be able to shut it. And when I shut it, no one's going to be able to open it. In other words, the people who are not a part of this kingdom will not be able to get in deceivingly, right? They can only get on in, in on the basis of Jesus Christ who has the keys to the kingdom. So this is not talking about, when he's talking about an open door, he's not talking about an open door for the opportunity of the gospel. He's not saying to this church, okay, you're going to try to spread the gospel. I'm going to open this door of witness. Now, Paul's used it in that way, hasn't he? The, the, the phrase open door. He's used it in 1 Corinthians 16.9, 2 Corinthians 2.12, and Colossians 4.3, all of which refer to an open door of ministry or opportunity to spread the gospel. But that's not how John is using it. That's not how Jesus is using it. He's saying, uh, I'm going to give you entrance into the kingdom, even though 
Look at verse 8 with me. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. The evidence, the clear evidence for you that this door is open and no one can shut it is that I am doing a work of perseverance in you. That you are continuing on in the faith. And because you're continuing on in the faith, that is evidence that this door is open to you and no one can shut it. And so you will not be excluded from my kingdom because of this work of perseverance is, is being worked out in you. Notice the nature of the Lord's protection in verse 10. We'll come back to verse 9, but the nature of the Lord's protection, verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. One of the ways that the Lord protects those who persevere is He guarantees entrance into the kingdom. So we could say it would be a final protection or provision of those who persevere. But here He gives a second promise to those who persevere, and that is that He'll keep them from the hour of testing. Now what is this hour of testing? Um, This hour of testing... Uh, in order to understand it, I think we need to understand a little bit more about this verse. This is a, um, a debated verse with regard to, and, and there comes out basically two main positions. The first is called a pre-tribulation rapture position. Okay, all that means is pre-tribulation. Tribulation is the seven-year period of judgment that's going to come on the earth. Pre meaning before, right? So the rapture happening before that seven-year judgment on the earth. And the other is called a post-tribulational rapture position where Christ will, will remove His saints after the seven-year tribulation. And then He's going to basically immediately come back down and, and begin His kingdom. So in both of these views, we would... Uh, we would not argue with regard to there being a tribulation period, that both would agree, and that there is a period of a kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. So no one would argue on that. Um, But the question is, when does the Lord rapture His saints? Is it before the tribulation or after the tribulation? And and so this verse is used to, to argue both points, in fact. But uh, I'd like to show you um, what I think what I think the intention of Jesus Christ is here. The word testing there in uh, in verse ten, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. The word testing is used in the New Testament to refer to an examination in order to determine the authenticity. So. Again, no one would argue that this is referring to the tribulation period. This hour of testing, hour in the Scripture, the word hour, can mean a literal hour. Okay, Like when Jesus was praying at Gethsemane, He said, Cannot you, can, can you not pray with Me? and you not stay watch with Me for one hour? Speaking of a literal hour likely there. Um, in fact, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 15, we have it referred to as a specific hour. But turn to chapter 18 chapter 18, verse 10. 
Because here we see the word hour being used for a period of time. So not referring to a specific hour as if there's going to be a huge amount of testing in one hour, one 60-minute hour. Okay, this is referring to a period of time. Look at chapter 18, verse 10. Uh, the kings of the earth are standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And then verse 19 has a similar sort of phrasing. And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. And... Uh, no matter which position people fall on, whether Christ comes before the tribulation or after, they would agree that this here in Revelation 18 is referring to a period of time. That when Babylon is destroyed, it doesn't happen in exactly 60 minute period of time. Right? It happens over a long period of time where there's destruction going on over several weeks and months. So, turn back to Revelation 3 because what we're talking about is... It, Christ is talking about a period of time that's going to be a time of examination. Some would say that these are just trials that come into life. Okay, that this is believers will receive trials in life. Certainly, you've experienced tr periods of trials in your life, right? And so, some people would argue that, but but the people who do argue that, by the way, are those who don't take Revelation as literal. They believe that Revelation is just a story about the, the war that goes on between good and evil. Okay, So, while there's battles being talked about in here and all sorts of things going on in heaven, it's really just a, the worldly uh, battle that there is, the, the battle in the church between the church and the world, between the Christian and the unbeliever, between good and evil, between God and Satan. And so, they don't even take Revelation as being... Literal, And so as a result, when it says that He'll save you from the hour, the examination period of testing, He's saying that, that, that you will be saved from some of these trials. Um, but I believe that Christ here is specifically referring to the tribulation period because of how it's described. Look back at verse 10 again with me. I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Notice, that hour which is about to come upon whom? the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. So, what is the scope of this testing? Is it just believers in the church who are experiencing individual trials? It's an hour, it's a period of time of testing that's coming upon the whole world. And notice, the context, the immediate context, shows that this is not current. Verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. So until I come, you need to persevere. So this hour that's going to come is still future. And um, in fact, uh, it's referred to as the hour of His judgment. The tribulation period is referred to the hour of His judgment in chapter 14, verse 7. So that gives me an indication that... Um, that this hour of testing is referring to the tribulation period. So that leads us to the critical question. In what way does Christ keep believers from it? Did you see what 
what his promise was there in verse 10? I also will keep you from, and then we could insert the tribulation period. And there are two main views, as I mentioned. The post-tribulational view, that means that uh, the, the Christ will, re- will rapture His saints after the tribulation. And the pre-tribulational view. Now, those who believe this first view, this post-tribulational view, would argue that this phrase or this, this verbal phrase, keep from, is used another time in Scripture. Turn to John chapter 17. This is the only other time this phrase is used in the New Testament. And it's used in one of John's Gospels. So this helps shed some light on what it means. And those who believe in a, that Christ will come after the tribulation that He will rapture His saints after the tribulation, take this verse and use it to apply to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Because here, Jesus says that He wants to take, uh, He wants to keep believers from the evil one. Chapter 17, verse 15. Jesus is speaking to His Father and He says, I do not ask you to take them, the disciples, out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. See those two words, keep from? That's the same two words that are used in Revelation 3.10 in the Greek language. To keep from. So we have to agree that one of the possible meanings of keep from would be to, to, uh, to be able to preserve them in the midst of. So what Jesus could be saying is this. I pray that you not take them out of the world, but that you preserve them in the midst of the evil one or in the midst of the power of the evil one. That could be the way. And if, and if that is the case, then you can understand why the post-tribulational people would take Revelation 3.10 the same way. They would say, what Jesus is saying is He'll preserve you in the midst of the tribulation. So that if you're a Christian, you could actually go through that tribulation period, but Christ will preserve you. Don't worry. And, uh, and this is the basis for which they make that argument. But the question that the, the post-tribulational people would have to answer is, that, is how can believers be preserved in the midst of the tribulation when no believers survive other than the 144,000? So, so they have to, the burden of proof is on them to answer why all these believers are dying. If they're being preserved through it, how are they being preserved? And likely their argument would be something like, well, they don't see final death. They don't experience eternal damnation. But I would argue that they've actually made a wrong interpretation of Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Turn back there now. And let me give you... Um, two main reasons why I think Christ will come before the tribulation. The first is that you have throughout the first three chapters, as we've been talking about these first several sermons, throughout the first three chapters, you have the mention of local churches, don't you? But what you're going to notice in chapters 4 through 18, there is no mention of church at all. And you know what happens in chapters 4 through 18? It's the hour of judgment. It's the period of judgment. It's the tribulation period. And yet the church is never mentioned on the earth. Now, there are believers on the earth during that time, but there's no mention of the church. There's no mention of the local church. 
And so for that reason, I would say that this is, this is accurate, that Christ raptures His saints before the tribulation period so that the church now is not on the earth during this tribulation period. Where are they? They're with Christ in heaven, waiting to return with Him at the end of that tribulation period to, to bring on the kingdom. And by the way, uh, if you study through Revelation, or as we do, you're going to see that there are other references to a body of saved people in heaven during this time. Turn to chapter 19 with me. Okay, This is towards the end of the tribulation period. Chapter 19. Towards the end of the tribulation period. And now there's this marriage ceremony that takes place between Christ and His bride. And who is Christ's bride according to Paul? The church. Right? 1 Corinthians 11.2, Ephesians 5.25-27. The church is the bride of Christ. And notice what happens at the end of this tribulation period. After these things, I heard some, something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Skip to verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Verse 9. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. This marriage ceremony happens at the end of the tribulation. What you're going to have described for you, we don't have time to look, but verses 11 through 16 is speaking of Christ coming with his bride back to the earth to take on this battle, which is called the Battle of Armageddon. And following that battle, as you know, Christ will reign on this earth with His bride, the church. And that doesn't happen until chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. So, I can say uh, to you based on chapter 3, verse 10, that what Christ is promising here is no small thing. He's saying if you are marked by perseverance in your life as a church, as individuals. When my hour of judgment comes upon this earth, I will save you from it. I will keep you from it. In other words, I will take you away from it. In fact, that is the meaning, by the way, of John seventeen fifteen that I was talking about. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to take, you, take them away from the evil one. It's not as if we are under the power of Satan. And He's protecting us through Satan's power. We are actually taken away from Satan's power because if we're under the power of Satan, then we're not a believer. Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And so, the arguments for, for Christ's rapture coming after the tribulation I don't think hold water based on the immediate context of what Christ is saying to the church of Philadelphia and the broader context of Revelation and the broader context of Scripture. Let me give you four uh, four other references that you can look up if you'd like to further proof why I believe Christ is coming before the tribulation. Why He's rapturing the saints before the tribulation. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, and John 5, 24. Those are all great 
proofs for why Christ is coming before the tribulation, but I would argue to you that this is the best proof in the Scriptures that we have for Christ's rapture happening before the tribulation. So the Lord protects those who persevere. We need to quickly look at the Lord providing for those who persevere. Jesus gives five promises for those who persevere. Verse 9, He says, He will humiliate your enemies. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. We've talked about who these people are. They are Jews ethnically, but they are not Jews. They're not sons of Abraham in the the spiritual sense. They are actually hostile towards the things of God. That's why it says they lie. their, Their actions don't support their words. Why will Christ make them bow down at our feet? Because it's an act of humiliation. He, will, he says, I will show them that I have loved you. They will bow down at your feet in that sense. Not, not in a, a, a worshipful sense that they're going to worship you, Church of Philadelphia. No, but, but to show that, that I loved you. And that goes along with what he had said in verse 8, that you had little power. You, you, you have not denied my name. Second promise that Christ gives to those who persevere is that the church will be delivered from tribulation. We looked at that verse 10. Third promise is that He will give us a crown. It's implied in verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. What is this referring to? Does this mean that someone can take our salvation? I would argue that this is not the crown that we receive for being saved, but rather a crown of reward. Similar to what's talked about in Second John chapter one verse eight, where John says, "Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward." And who is he talking to? To there, he's talking to the chosen lady and the other believers in the church there. So he's saying to believers, "Watch out that you don't lose your full reward." In other words, you can actually lose part of your reward based on how you live. So in order to to receive the full crown, what Jesus is saying here in verse 11, is you must, you must persevere. John doesn't want them to stand before Christ at the judgment seat and not be able to receive the full measure of what they had earned. So persevere. So first, promise. Enemies will be humiliated. Secondly, will be delivered from the tribulation. Thirdly, a crown of reward. Fourthly, believers will be honored. Verse 12. The way that they're honored is by becoming a pillar in the temple. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. A pillar is a foundational piece to the temple. And and he's saying that you will become like a pillar in the millennial kingdom. It will be a, You will be a permanent part. You will not be able to go out. No one will be able to take you out. No one will be able to, to guard you from going in. You will be a pillar there. And then fifthly, the fifth promise is that saints will be marked with three names. Verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And then notice the three names that believers will receive. I will write on him the name of my God, that's the first name, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes out of heaven from my God, that's the second name, and my new name, That's the third name. So, believers 
if they persevere, which all believers do persevere, so those who persevere will receive three names. First, the name of my God. What does it mean when you write your name on something? Do you remember when you were in grade school and your teacher would have that one paper usually that didn't have a name on it? What would she say? Okay, who didn't put their name on their paper? And then she would make them come up and do it themselves to write their name on it. Why? Because they were taking ownership of that paper. In fact, every time you write your name on something, that's what you're doing. You're taking ownership of it. Think about when you sign your name on a check or when you sign your name on a deed for a house. Right? You're taking ownership of that. Or, or you sign your name on a, on a document. You're saying, I take ownership for having read and understood these things in this document. Right? So when Christ says that I'm going to put the name of my God on you, what is he saying? He's saying, I am taking ownership of you. Okay, As if you're a little uh, child, as if as, as a child you have a dollar or some small toy and you write your name on it and make sure no one else gets that toy. That is mine. I, I own it. That's what God's saying about us. Those who persevere, He's saying, they are mine. Secondly, the name of the city of my God, which is explained in verse 12 as Jerusalem, which is the city coming out of heaven. Along with Christ's name is the, the, the name of the home that we will have, which is the, the heavenly Jerusalem. It, it indicates where we will be. Okay, Similar to how you often write your name with the city in which you live. These two names will be written on you. And then thirdly, my new name. This one's a little bit harder to what it is, but it could be that Christ is speaking of His name. Jesus could be saying, My new name. Or He could be saying, My new name for you. That He's actually changing your name. Or giving you the name that He has had for you. It, I would argue that it's probably changing your name. That He's going to give you a new name. We, we sing a song. There's a new name written down in glory and it's mine. Right? It's probably a new name that's being given to us. And the reason I say that is because it would be kind of awkward or odd for Jesus to say this in verse 12. I will write on him the name of me and the name of the city, Jerusalem, and the name of me. Or to say the name of God, the name of Jerusalem, and the name of me. Wouldn't that be kind of odd that he would have both of those names on there, both God and himself? So I would argue based on that and on chapter 2, verse 17 that he's probably speaking of a new name that he's going to give to us. That there is a way that he looks at us and describes us based on our the works that have been produced as a result of our faith. Whatever the name is, we know that at the very least we are marked as special to God. That's why he calls us mine. He writes his name on us. Those who persevere will receive that. And the exhortation for all believers including us, is that we must continue in our faith. Verse 11 again, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast to what you have until I come. Don't give up in the race now. It may be difficult. It may be hard. But keep on persevering because, verse 12, he who overcomes will receive these things. Believer, it's not enough for you to persevere yourself. 
I would argue that this is written to a church and the, the, the church should receive this message as a whole, that the church should persevere, not just individuals. And so if you are persevering yourself, that's good. Keep doing that. But it's not enough. You need to make sure that you are not allowing other members of this church to slip away. The responsibility to persevere and to guard against sin is not just so that you can protect yourself. It would be like you standing out on the battlefield and then digging a, a, a ditch for yourself, a hole that you could crawl into and protect yourself while all of your, all of your fellow sh- soldiers are being shot down and killed. When you were saved, you were not saved to a life of isolation. You were saved to a community of believers with whom will you will help protect from the evil one and you will be helped by them that we commit to each other, help each other persevere in the faith. In order for you to do that, then you first need to be a committed member. If you're not a member of this church and you fall into sin and become unfaithful to God, on what grounds does our church have to pursue and restore you? We can't come after you. We can't, we can't uh, expose your sin and, and allow, allow it to be dealt with. Now, maybe you say, well, that's good because I don't want you to. We understand the alternative, right? Your sin's not exposed and not dealt with very well could be an indication that you're not a believer. And so you need to be a member of a good church so that the church can have a basis for which they pursue you and restore you, help restore you to fellowship with other believers and most importantly with God. And you don't really have any basis if you're not a member to help restore someone else because you've never committed yourself to this body in a formal way. And so if someone in our church gets caught in sin, we're commended to restore such a one. But if they won't listen, then we take two or three. And if they still won't listen, then we take take it to the church. Those are in the case of unrepentant sin. But if you've committed yourself to join this body and have committed to work hard to protect it and uphold the truth, then not only... Will we as a church have the grounds to restore you when you fall, which is a good thing. But also, you will be counted on to protect other people from falling. And we could call on you to pray and to help restore those who are falling asleep spiritually. It's a very serious thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. Far be it from us to to do that or to allow people in our midst to do that. And so we need to purpose together to be unified, to be working out our salvation together in fear and trembling. One of the motivations that we have to serve God is that there is this negative consequence that will come if we don't deal with our sin, if we don't draw near to God, right? And that's a good thing. They have a negative motivation, as well as the positive ones that are out there. All of those should be seen from the love, the hand of a loving God and uh, we should work together to help uh, hold each other up and help each other persevere. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word and how it helps expose our weaknesses and and our inconsistent the inconsistencies in our thinking. We pray that you'd help it help us to continue to do that. Help us never to get to the point in our lives where we think we have arrived spiritually or doctrinally, but that we're always working to improve the way we understand the scriptures and the way we practice the scriptures. And may that not just be the case in our lives individually. Certainly it should. But may it be the case as as a whole that our church would be presented as spotless on the day of Jesus Christ. We thank You for how He has provided and He has protected us. And we pray that He would do that until the end. May we be found worthy of our calling and not give up no matter how hard this life against sin and Satan becomes, no matter how hard um, the trials are that come our way, may You use them to help expose our sin and help to, to draw us closer to You because there's nothing more important than having a right relationship with You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.